You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thomas Frank is the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and the Wrecking Crew. He's also a commentator for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. You got it, Rick. Well, Thomas, your latest uh, a Christmas uh, present to the world is a low, dishonest decade, and it was not the height of American history. You know, what I was thinking was there's an old book from the 60s uh, called Been Down So Long, It Looks Like Up to Me. Uh-huh. And, and I was thinking that here in the uh, 21st century, the new version is, I've been so far to the right, it looks like the center to me. <laughs> yeah. That's... That's funny, I, but I, you know, I, but I actually wasn't trying to be um, super partisan, you know. This oh time no, around. I'm, I'm trying to get away from that. Uh, the, uh, the, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I hope to, because you know, uh, I don't know. It just that doesn't seem like the, the 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 way to spend the rest of my life. But um, the, I mean, the 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 things that I talked about that happened in the aughts are, you know, objectively did happen. There's no way you can argue about them. No, no, no. Uh, let, let's go back. I, I often, I, I've been thinking for the last couple mm-hmm. of days since the story came out, you know, what did I forget? <laughs> <You know? laughs> what awful things did I leave out of the piece? And I, you know what? I left out 9-11. Yeah. There's that. But I think even worse than almost 9-11 was this idea that afterwards, how are we going to get get out of it? We're going to charge our way out. It's yeah, like yeah. Fred, and Wil- Fred, Fred and Wilma Flintstone. We're going to go out there and charge our way back to national strength. Well, that's a, you know, there's, that gets us at one of the, the real fundamental contradictions of American society, which is it's a consumer society, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, so that's, you, you have to do, you know, the, things like that, you know, we all, or the, the people in charge of the country know that that's true, and ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what has to happen. But at the same time, well, first of all, there's two important things with that. First of all, we have no idea how consuming works and why people buy the, the, the things that they do buy and, and, you know, what's rational about it and what isn't. I mean, uh, there's all these, you know, social scientists that study this all the time, but at the end of the day, we really don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other hand, the other thing is that we, we what we do know about it is that a consumer society has to be a, a broad middle class society. Mm-hmm. You know, like where blue collar people are able to buy things, mm-hmm. you know? And we don't have that anymore. We have been galloping away from that for, as, you know, for, well, for basically ever since the, the early 1980s, you know, mm-hmm. where you, where you, you, well, look, the famous story, uh, you know, auto workers in Detroit, which was once a very prosperous city, although it's hard to believe now, uh, auto workers in Detroit were not only able to afford the cars that they built, but they would routinely buy uh, motorboats and, uh, you know, vacation homes and stuff like that, and they'd send their kids to college. And that's, uh, you know, what you need to have to have a, uh, a proper consumer society. But we've been, you know, trying to demolish that for a long time now. Yeah, it's uh, the destruction of the middle class, uh, the polarization of wealth, uh, what uh, the band Heaven 17 called the luxury gap. Yeah, it's. I mean, and this is something that we all know is happening. Uh, you know, we hear about it on the news every now and then, but it's hard to picture it, it's hard to imagine it, and it's hard to really understand the effects 
that it's having. But you know, uh, you know, I was writing the story and I came across an anecdote about a trader uh, who works for a division of Citibank who, who uh, made a hundred million dollars, got a hundred million dollar bonus or something like that in 2008. I forget what particular commodity he was trading, but uh, you know. And 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 I mean and and it's like that all across uh, Wall Street and all you know throughout the financial sector. I think the day will come, Rick, when it's like every football stadium in America is named for a hedge fund. <laughs> that's the only that's the, that's the only uh, people that can afford things like that anymore. I think that's where we're where we're headed. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting too is that um, the middle class still looks like it exists. I mean, there are still the houses and there are still the people with jobs, but all of the disposable income, what used to go towards what you were saying, like the, you know, the the boats, the vacations and all that stuff, that stuff is just completely... And the college education. And the college work. education, all that is just going to barely pay the rent, utilities, and get a $100 sack of groceries at, the, right. at Safeway. That's right. I mean, well, that's the, the prosperity of the arts, you know, such as it was, and there was on paper we were in you know we were having boom times for about three or four years there in the middle of the decade the prosperity basically all went to the hedge fund types mm -hmm. the wall street types and the i guess the uh, silicon valley well they they didn't this wasn't a great decade for them but no. uh, for for people at the very upper end of the of the income scale that's that's who made money i mean the, your average your middle class american uh, did not do that well in, over this over the course of this decade uh, it, it strikes me too the way you open the piece. Um, you talk, mentioned that you know, on two thousand in the year two thousand, the Dow Jones closed at eleven thousand three hundred fifty-seven, and the Nasdaq at forty-one thirty-one. I mean, those numbers are somewhat you know close to incomprehensible to us now. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, well, the Dow at least will get back to that someday. We hope. But the the, what, the the reason that's so important is because these are not numbers that ordinarily go in reverse. No. <laughs> you know, in fact, this is, I mean, one of the, uh, I, back in the 1990s, I, I, uh, you might not remember this, I wrote a book called One Market Under God. It was mm -hmm. about, um, well, it was about all different aspects of business culture, but w one of the chapters was about um, uh, investment guides. And there was this whole pop literature, it still is, this pop literature of inve investment literature. Mm -hmm. And one of the sort of uh, cliches of that literature is that you can count on, the Dow uh, returning 7% every year. And, and this was, I mean, and, and that was, okay, even in the 90s, that was not really the case. There were some years where it did much better than that, but a lot of years, when, I mean, it was not a, it's not a practical expectation. But look at this, you've got 10 years where it's, you know, it did 7% in reverse. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is, this is uh, I mean, this is one of the worst stock market performances ever. Now, uh, I, I like, too, the, the way that, that you talk about um, Enron, because uh, when we were introduced to a lot of these concepts, the you know, mortgage-backed securities and Enron and all this stuff, and as, okay. as the banks dismantled the, the Glass-Steagall Act, yep. I mean, it was all in the name of freedom of enterprise and, and Oh, and they, and they off the shackles it. of regulation. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's it's hard to recall this stuff, but uh, you know, I was I was paying I was I was fascinated by Enron mm -hmm. back in oh. the before before it collapsed, and the reason I was fascinated by them is because I was living in Chicago at the time, and there was a move afoot to um, they were they wanted to privatize and deregulate the electric uh, the electrical utility, mm -hmm. and I thought that's a bad idea. And I did a little research on it, and, and I was able to show why it was a bad idea. Okay, 
Well, who was behind the push for it? And this is the weird thing. It was a company, this is in 97, 98, it was a company called Enron, and I'd never heard of them before, and they didn't operate in Illinois. And I thought, why, why do they want why do they want to do this? You know, what's up with this? And, it, it, and the more I looked into it, the company seemed more like a political operation than it did a uh, you know an actual pipeline company or whatever it was that they that they. I mean, we and as we later found out, we were never really quite sure what they did. You know, but uh, uh, they 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 had this they ideological lights. <laughs> and we all know about this now because you know Ken Lay was best friends with George W. Bush. Blah blah mm. blah. Was advising Cheney on his on his energy policy when the when the whole thing fell apart and all that sort of thing. But they used to run these commercials, equating what they did in their war on regulation with you know human emancipation. This was about freedom, mm-hmm. and they they said the same thing when I mean the Glass Steagall Act all through the nineties. If you read you know editorials in the financial press, this was about human freedom, getting rid of this de- awful onerous depression era regulation. That was written back before people understood markets and the you know the real power and magic and wonder of markets, and uh, Citibank was the main you know force behind demolishing that law. And in fact, after they got rid of it, they got rid of it a month and a, and, uh, yeah, a month and two weeks before the aughts began. It was in November of '99. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got rid of it. Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin, you know, was pushing uh, the, the the bill to get rid of it, and. They, <laughs> They gave him a job. <laughs> well, there's a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Give that man a, a bonus. Oh well, and I should add that mm-hmm. turned out to be that's. I mean, that was well, those were Democrats that did that, and that is, by the way, one of the most important elements in for understanding the financial crisis was the, the when they did away with Glass Steagall because yeah. it allowed Citibank to own. Well, just for example, remember that I talked about that hundred million dollar trader mm-hmm. earlier. That wouldn't have been permitted uh, before they did away with that. Funny how the word traitor and traitor sounds so <laughs> Do similar. Do not go there, Cluffle. <laughs> um, there, the, there, there's the this uh, homonyms that, that they 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 exist for a reason. <laughs> now, now, uh, one of the things you talk about too is that. Uh, the failure of our critical faculties, and I think that they weren't so much failed as so much. I mean, they were there, but they were just out advertised. I mean, the the people who wanted who wanted a war and wanted uh, deregulation and, and wanted all the stuff to happen, they were the people who had all the big bucks. I mean, the yeah. the idea that the uh, of a liberal media is is almost it's an oxymoron because the media is is a money company. There. Well, yes, and, and don't you sometimes feel like the other side, or the, I mean, the other side. I shouldn't put it that way, but the people who were in favor of. I mean, I felt this way in the nineties. People who were in favor of de-rate, of doing away with Glass Steagall. Just one example. Just ran rings around the other side. I mean, there was no opposition to it. This this was it was Democrats in the White House that did it. You know, absolutely. And, <laughs> And uh, I, I, I just uh, that, but that's of course from from the from the from the nineties, an example from the nineties. But I mean, the whole uh, I was this came up uh, two weeks ago when I was I was writing about the collapse of journalism and how we failed in journal, journalism. There's a very interesting story in the Columbia Journalism Review, which is sort of the premier journalism review magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know they're not going to have much left to review <laughs> very soon. <laughs> but they they did a study of you know everybody says journalism failed 
to predict the financial crisis. Okay, let's do a study of it and see just how badly did uh, did American journalism drop the ball. They did a massive study, and it is interesting to read. And I got in contact with the author. And, I mean, the number of stories, you know, and I talked to him about, uh, you know, who failed, who succeeded, who did well in 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 the run-up to the crisis, who did poorly. And there were very, very, very few uh, newspaper stories. Let, let me take a step back. There were lots of newspaper stories saying that the housing bubble was, uh, you know, had gone uh, too far and would would collapse. Everybody was was, or not everybody, but lots of people were saying that. The connection that nobody made was the the connection between the housing bubble and Wall Street, the mortgage-backed securities. Mm. And there were, I mean, you can count on on your two hands the number of newspaper stories and magazine stories that made that connection. And what's really strange is that some of the magazines that did make it were really out of the way things. Like there's one called Facing South. Mm-hmm. There's Mother Jones. Really? Um, yep. And uh, there was a, the Pittsburgh City Paper had a huge, had a series on this. I think they won a prize for it in, in you know, 2005, mm. uh, putting together the pieces. But your mainstream uh, uh, business journalism didn't catch on at all. Completely missed the boat. And why is that? And this is a case of our critical faculties just being dulled. It's because they, they're they way too close to their subjects. And by mm-hmm. the way, they missed the Enron thing, too, until it was too late. I mean, I, you know, there's, I don't know, they just dropped the ball so many times. In some ways, I mean, the, the collapse of newspapers is like the worst thing that's ever happened. But in other ways, I mean, they had their chance, you know? There are so many foxes in the hen house. There's no rooms for the hens anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you also uh, talk about the, the the a couple of bills that have just been recently passed. The um, the what will become probably known as the 2009 uh, insurance health insurance support act. Yeah, allows them to be remain exempt from antitrust laws. Yet yeah, forces us all to buy their insurance with yeah. no public uh, choice or competition. That's right. Uh, I think, now, I am not a great authority on this. I just have to go on what I read in the newspapers, <laughs> as do we all. I mean, I don't have any inside information on this, but, uh, you know, based on what I've seen, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, this, is, this is shaping up to be a, uh, you know, this is going to be a boon for the, uh, for the, for the insurance companies. They're not going to face for competition. They're not even going to face antitrust. Uh, one of the things I really don't understand about the situation that we're in is, you know, antitrust, uh, basically the federal government stopped enforcing it in the 1980s uh, mm-hmm. under the Reagan administration. And, you know, they, they, they could just as easily bring it back. I mean, it's a, a huge weapon that they have to use against these companies. And they, they do constitute essentially a monopoly in all sorts in all sorts of places in America and mm-hmm. I have no idea why they just took that off the table but they did um, it, it, that's always uh, been kind of a, a question of mine because it seems like uh, not not just the insurance companies, the gas companies, the power companies, there's the cable companies. I mean, all these people seem to have virtual monopolies yeah. that, uh, against which nobody says boo. Yeah, well, I I will write about that in the future. I, I, I actually, I, this is a subject that, that has rankled me for a long time, and I know something about it, but um, again, it's a field where all the expertise is on the other side. Mm. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the whole Chicago school of, 
of, uh, of you know of, of uh, law and economics. That's that's who did away with antitrust basically when they got their theory accepted. And um, these people are you know uh, there's you know they win huge prizes. They're very big names. And who am I? You know, <laughs> like a, I'm a you know uh, what do you call it a dilettante? You know, I go from subject to subject writing about it. Uh, so for me to take that on, I have to do some more homework. But I will. I promise you. And we'll be speaking with you just as soon as you do. I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and the Wrecking Crew and a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. You got it, daddy You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.